Little Beverly Smith, who was born in Akron, Ohio, almost never cried when she was a little baby. Never cried when she fell down. Never cried when she bumped her head. Didn't even cry when she burned her hand on a hot stove at one point. She did cry when she got angry. The doctor soon discovered she had a defect in the central nervous system for which no cure was known. She could not feel pain. The doctor told the mother she would just have to watch her all the time. Not a real comfortable thing to do. Because the baby might break a bone, continue using it until it could not be set properly. Something else could happen. She could develop appendicitis without nature's usual warning of pain. Life without pain, ironically, would be perpetually dangerous. What would happen to us as Christians if we never suffered physical, social, mental, emotional, other kinds of pain? Well, we're going to see in our passage this morning, in verses 6 through 10 of this first epistle to the Thessalonians, that suffering and pain is part indeed, of a fallen world, but that it is not random nor out of control. But God has a purpose for it, and not for individual Christians only, but sometimes for entire churches. We're also going to see that the last part of verse 8 is the main point of this passage. Look at it again, the last part of verse 8, so that we have no need to say anything. So maybe the sermon's over. That's the main point of the passage. How could that be the main point of the passage? I remember when first studying this, and I was teaching it, I thought, what kind of lecture is this going to be? The main point is, Paul had no need to say anything. How could that be the main point, a vacuous point, an empty point? We're going to see, ironically, it's an amazing, robust point. But we'll work our way there. Now, verses 2 through 5 that Ryan has read, Paul has thanked God for the Thessalonians' faith and election. It's likely that our passage is continuing that thanksgiving. Paul is thanking God here for the way in which the Thessalonians received the gospel and continue to grow as Christians. But precisely how had they received the gospel? Look at verse 6 again with me. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They had received the gospel by imitating Jesus and the apostles' faith. So what's our point here? Well, the main first point of our passage, of which there will be three, is the purpose of suffering is this. We're to follow Jesus and the apostles by being joyously faithful to God's word in the midst of tribulation. Let me repeat it. We're to follow Jesus and the apostles by being joyously faithful, joyously believing in God's word through tribulation. The first part of verse 6 says that the Thessalonians were imitators. You also became imitators of Christ and the apostles. How were they imitators? The second part of verse 6 tells us. By receiving the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, your translation, or some of them say, for you receive the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Very similar. We're to follow Jesus and the apostles by being joyously faithful to God's word in the midst of trial. That's not easy to do. Not just faithful, by the way, to God's word. Joyously in the midst of trial. 
How had the Thessalonians suffered? Listen, we, we need to understand that a little bit. Uh, we, we see right on the page uh, uh, over in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, notice verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For the Christians in Judea had suffered, and they became imitators not only of the apostles in Jesus, but of uh, uh, the first Christians in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. And we find in the account of when the gospel came to the Thessalonians in Acts chapter 17, the following. In Acts chapter 17, in verse 2, it says, As was Paul's custom, he went to uh, the Jewish synagogue, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Messiah had to suffer and to rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews didn't believe. Becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, a faithful Christian, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began to drag Jason out and some other of the Christian brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus and they stirred up the crowd, and the city authorities heard these things. And they apparently jailed Jason for a time because uh, he needed some bail, it says in verse 9. And when they received a pledge, a bond from Jason and the others, they released them. So Jason and the others believed, despite uh, the Jews rounding up a number of people from uh, the city to come against them, put them in jail, but they kept believing. So it wasn't easy. But that's fleshing out what Paul is saying in our passage in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, how they received the word, trusted in it through trial, joyously. It's amazing. It's difficult enough to suffer something and continue to trust God in his word, but to do this joyfully. How can we do this? It's not only difficult, it's impossible. We can't do it ourselves. How does it come? Let's read verse 6. It tells us, You became imitators of us, son of the Lord, having received the word of much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is joy that can only come from the power source of the Holy Spirit. And when we see our brothers and sisters suffering, we need continually to rally together and to pray for them that they'll maintain faith to God's word. And do it joyously, praying that God would work both the faith and the joy supernaturally in them. We cannot muster up joy in ourselves, just as we cannot muster up faith in ourselves. You remember Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you've been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast, because if we can muster up faith in ourselves, it is a work and we can boast of it because it comes from us. If God does the work, we can only boast in him. So we're to follow Jesus and the apostles in this. Paul says, for example, in Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings. And in 2 Corinthians 7.4, he says, I'm filled with comfort. 
I'm overflowing with joy in all our affliction. How did Paul do that? How did Jesus do it? Well, Jesus maintained joy in the midst of suffering. He was motivated motivated to have joy because of the prospect of an even greater joy which he would receive after accomplishing the work at the cross. Remember Hebrews chapter 12 where the writer there says this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses in verse 1, Surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes, how can we do that? How can we run with endurance? You have to endure, it's not easy. Well, we fix our eyes, verse 2, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, that is Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself that you may not grow weary and lose heart. The idea is that Jesus did not lose heart in the midst of the afflictions. There was a deep-seated disposition of desire to continue on. The beginning seeds of joy that would be consummated at the resurrection and afterward. It's a kind of joy, it's kind of hard to understand how you can have Joy in the midst of pain. The best way I can think of it, and I'm not a long-distance runner, Carl is, uh, but uh, my understanding, and Carl, you can tell me if I'm wrong here, is let's say you're running a long-distance race. And um, you can see the finish line, but let's say that, that, that you're a quarter of a mile away, and you're clearly winning, but it's toward the end, and you're dying. But... You can see the finish line. There is indeed a deep-seated joy that if you continue to endure the pain, there's going to be more joy. That's the idea. It's kind of ironic. Deeper joy amidst the outward pain, if you will. That's what Paul is talking about in our passage. Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people revile you now. And persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Notice, rejoice and be glad. That's amazing. Rejoice and be glad now for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 1 Peter 4.13, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that the revelation of Christ you may rejoice with exultation. Someone has said that a Christian's like a tea bag, not much good until it's gone through hot water. And it becomes enjoyable to the taste. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. The conclusion of our epistle in chapter 5 and verses 16 to 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And this rejoice always, giving thanks in everything, certainly includes circumstances of suffering. Now some Christians believe that if we have enough faith, then God will bless us materially and give us happiness with such material blessings. So we'll not have to suffer. We talked about that when I was talking about Psalm 1, where in Psalm 1 and verse 3, uh, the person who is nourished by God's word uh, uh, will prosper in whatever he does. The question was, if we're faithful enough, will God uh, give us material prosperity and health in this life? Does he guarantee that? So that if we don't get it, it just means we're not believing sufficiently. Enough. 
And I, I said there that I believe in the health and wealth gospel, but ultimately in the sense that God, for the faithful, will raise them from the dead. Uh, that's uh, the best health you can get. And they will be living in the new heavens and the new earth. He may certainly give us success in various ways here, materially in other ways, as a foreshadowing of what is to come. But he does not guarantee that. He indeed may bring affliction to us as he did to Jesus in his life in the old world. Paul's description of Christians trusting God in trials appears to be his understanding of what is typical of the Christian experience. Not that if you're faithful enough, everything's going to be great. No, Paul seems to go the other way. Notice chapter 3 and verse 2 of our epistle. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. So that no man, they need to be encouraged. Why? That no man be disturbed. In fact, the word here really is deceived by these afflictions. In other words, don't think afflictions mean you're under the curse of God, uh, that you're not being blessed. Don't be deceived by that, disturbed in that way. So that we're encouraging you so that no man would be disturbed or deceived by, the, deceived by these afflictions. For you yourselves know we have been destined for this. God has predestined us for suffering. Why? Because we follow the Lamb wherever he goes, Revelation 14. Christ suffered, and if we're truly followers of Christ, to one degree or another, suffering will come. Unless the Lord comes before we die, all of us will die. It's a pretty extreme form of suffering, but other suffering, no doubt, comes to us in varying degrees. Verse 4, for indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass as you know. Acts 14, 22 says, quote, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Some of us may suffer more or less than other Christians. All of us suffer in some significant way at some point in our lives. So the first point of our passage this morning is we're to follow Jesus and the apostles by trusting joyously in God's word through trial. That's hard to do. So the big question is this. Why is Paul making such a big point about it? So what? So what's the big deal about trusting joyously in God's word in the midst of trial? Why does God want us to be joyously faithful in our trials? Well, we've seen he's planned that for us. God wants us to be joyfully faithful, certainly, because his will um, is that we take pleasure in whatever he brings our way. He's planned for us to suffer. And we can have motivation that if we're joyfully trusting his word in the midst of these sufferings, we'll receive a greater reward and fuller joy in eternity. And that even spawns an inner joy in us now as we run this race. Remember Paul's athletic metaphor in 2 Timothy 2 that we talked about. We look toward that hope, as verse 3 of chapter 1 says, bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. God also, however, has another purpose in our joy and faith in God's word in the midst of trial. There's something in addition, and it's what our passage is especially focusing on. 
What happens when we're not begrudgingly faithful to God's word in affliction, but actually take a deep-seated pleasure in these afflictions? Verse 7 through the middle of verse 8 tells us the effect of such joyous faithfulness in God's word through trial. What is the effect of a joyous faith in God's word through trial? What is it? Let's read it. Verse 7 to the middle of verse 8. So you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. They became an example. Verse 8, for the word of God has sounded forth from you. See, they received the word. It's the title of the sermon. They received the word. Now they're resounding the word, resounding it. You became imitators. And then verse 8, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. So the second main point of our passage in verses 7 to the middle of 8 is this. When we maintain joy in God's word, faithful joy in God's word through affliction, we become models of faith for others. God has a plan for this. Yes, we're to take pleasure in whatever he brings our way, but there is another purpose, and that is that people would see our faith in God's word and joy in the midst of these afflictions. When we maintain faith and joy in God's word through affliction, we become models of faith for others. As we saw in Acts 17 and elsewhere, the Thessalonian Christians had believed in Christ despite suffering and persecution. As they continued to do that, they influenced others in their region to believe in Christ despite whatever persecution would come to them. God's purpose is that our joyous faith in his word through trial would be a witness to others of how to receive the gospel and continue to live as a Christian. People in the surrounding towns here around Thessalonica and in the region heard about their joyous faith and suffering, and they were influenced by it also to believe. That's an amazing thing. The world looks at someone who's suffering, and they're joyful. That's weird. That's not normal. And of course it's not normal because it comes from the Holy Spirit, but it gets people's attention. Why does it get people's attention? Again, it's not the normal course of things. And then it points them to Christ because we're imitating Christ and his faith in God's word and joy despite suffering. The Thessalonians themselves also continually, uh, continued probably to, to verbally witness to God's word. Now notice what the Thessalonians were there in verse 7. They became an example to all the believers. Now this word, for example, in Greek, it refers not just to being an example which others are to follow, but a pattern which influences them. The word in the ancient world, this word tupos, it's the actual Greek word where we get the word typewriter when you used to hit a key and it would leave an imprint. Um, that word is used of a mold in the same way uh, at Christmas time. Um, someone will, maybe perhaps a mother, uh, will make Christmas cookies, star-shaped cookies. Well, how do they make them? Well, they buy a little tin mold, a little metal mold, and they get the dough and, you know, go over all the dough, put it in. I don't know much about this, but... Um, <laughs> Apparently, they put it in the oven, and out comes star-shaped cookies, put a little, you know, sprinkly stuff on the top, that sort of thing. Here's the point. 
those molds are not an end in themselves. The mold, uh, you don't hang those kind of molds on the wall. Now, antique wood molds, you do. You know, the antique ones you put on the wall. That's their decorative end in themselves. But these molds point beyond themselves, don't they? They point to what they're going to produce. They point to what they're going to affect. They're going to affect the dough and a star-shaped cookie is going to come about. We are molds. And we're not here just for ourselves. Be hung decoratively on the church wall. We are here as we suffer and live cruciform lives, that is, lives patterned after the suffering of Christ. And we produce cruciform people. People who also trust in Christ and become like him. Whatever, whether you're a church leader or not, our lives are to be molds. We are not here for ourselves. We point beyond ourselves. We always have a molding influence. That's really what discipleship is. It's beautiful. People learn from models caught as well as from ideas taught. Parents, one of the ways that our children are going to become Christians is not merely through the biblical ideas we teach them. Yes, that has to be there. But the models of Christ. Christ-like living, which they catch from us. In other words, our God-like examples impact them, mold, have a molding influence on them to help them learn how to live by faith even when things don't go their way and to be faithful to God's word even when it's hard. This is crucial. When Paul reacted to suffering with joy and faith, it had the purpose of being a witness to others. It's very interesting. You can see this pattern in Paul that uh, when he was suffering, he continued to trust God's word, even joyfully. It's intriguing that the effect is people came to faith. Let me just give you a few of those passages because I think it's important to see that this pattern is found elsewhere. For example, Acts chapter 5 and verse 40. Here it's talking about the apostles. It says, verse 40 of chapter 5, after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. Just like what happened to the Thessalonians in chapter 17 of Acts. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, downcast and depressed. And they needed encouragement from other Christians. If you're reading your Bible, you know that if I didn't say something here, I'd be a false teacher. Because that's not what the Bible says here. Here's what it says. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, not depressed, but rejoicing that they'd been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, They kept on teaching, being faithful to the word and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. What's the effect? Next verse, chapter 6, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, people following in Christ were increasing. There's a cause and effect there. It's a direct result of their continued faithfulness and joy in teaching in God's word and more people were coming to faith. In Colossians 1.24, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 
because he's a molding influence. If you look at that word example, the word tupos, Paul is often a tupos, a mold for others. He's not there just for himself. He's there to mold others. Acts 16, same thing. Remember Paul uh, in Philippi in jail, beginning in verse 22. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. This is Paul and Silas. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the, jail to guard them, the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening. Their ears perked up. What did, these guys are weird. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer had been roused out of sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do, do yourself no harm. We're all right here. He called for lice, rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out. He said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What happened? Well, Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. They'd been joyously singing God's word, and now they speak the word, even though they'd been in tribulation. Then he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought, the jailer brought Paul and Silas into his house, set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. In this passage, Paul's joy in the midst of trial, while he's there in the jail singing, was probably still apparent. Even the earthquake didn't seem to affect him. And he doesn't just run and try to escape in the midst of the chaos. He stays there, he knows God wants him there. He's trusting the Lord. Apparently, his joy in the midst of this trial was probably still apparent after the earthquake. It made such an impression on the jailers. The only thing that I can figure out that caused him to say, you're different. What do you have? What must I do to be saved? And have what you have. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Trusting in God's word. Joyfully in the midst of trial. God uses it powerfully to bring about faith in others. It's amazing. So the first effect of having joyous faith in affliction in God's word is that we become models of faith for others. Now that last part of verse 8 through 10 gives us a second effect of joyous faithfulness. And it's the third point and the main point of our passage. Let's read it beginning at the last part of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 8, the very end of verse 8. So that we have no need to say anything. Why? The Thessalonians had been such faithful witnesses and had made such a huge impression by continuing to trust in God's word in the midst of affliction and witnessing that um, they worked Paul out of a job. We have no need to say anything. 
That's a pretty amazing point. Verse 10, verse 9, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The point is when we maintain faith in God's word, joyfully in affliction, we relieve the load of evangelizing from the shoulders of our church leaders. So that the apostolic circle headed by Paul says, we have no need to say anything. In that region, the Thessalonians were doing it. Not only were the Thessalonians doing it, look at verse 9. The people to whom the Thessalonians witnessed were witnessing. For they themselves, those to whom the Thessalonians witnessed to, the Macedonians and the Achaeans and the others in the outer region, they report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. So the Thessalonians, and actually those to whom the Thessalonians witnessed, were working Paul out of a job, if you will. When we maintain faith and affliction, we relieve the load of evangelizing from the shoulders of our church leaders. Doesn't mean they don't do it. What it means is that we add to the work that they do. The Thessalonian Christians were such effective examples verbally and in lifestyle of, of witness throughout their region. The apostles had no need of going to those formerly unevangelized areas and proclaiming the gospel. It was being done. The people the apostles hoped to evangelize were themselves proclaiming the gospel to others. So this is not a strange point. We have no need to say anything. You can see how robust it is. It's amazing. Not empty. In fact, this is part of the main point of the passage then. It is the main point. What was it about the Thessalonians that others had heard about? Well, they had apparently not only heard and seen, and some seen, that the Thessalonians had faith and joy in God's word through trial, but that they were very aware of what it was precisely that the Thessalonians had believed, which enabled them to joyfully endure the trials. What had they believed? What was the object of their faith? What is it that they were trusting in this word? They had joy in despite the trials. See, it's joy and faith and joy in that word. What was it? Verses 9 and 10 tell us. They themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and here it is. How you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's about the gospel. This is a threefold description of the Christian life. Number one, we turn from our earthly idols. Number two, we turn to Christ and serve him. And number three, we then wait eagerly for him to return. Notice at the end that this is Jesus who will return. What will happen? Deliver us from the wrath to come. How can he do that? He's taken the wrath for us at the cross. The end time final judgment, this is amazing. That final judgment at the end of time, which was to come at the very end, has been pushed back to the cross for those who believe. And he's taken that wrath for us, suffered hell for us. But for those who don't believe, they will undergo that wrath. And when that wrath comes at the end, we'll be saved from it because we've already been saved from it. And we will go through it unharmed. All the believers and not just the church leaders in churches, including this church, should have a verbal and lifestyle witness like the Thessalonians. All of us, not just the church leaders. 
The witness of a church is not merely the witness of the pastor, the staff, and the elders, but for such a witness to be really effective, others in the church need to become molds, influencing others, to be witnesses in their, the way they live, trusting in God's word, despite whatever suffering comes, whatever temptations to compromise that would cause us not to trust. We keep trusting joyfully, even if it means hardship for us. And when that happens, the faith spreads. There is an effect, a molding and effect. We're not there just for ourselves to be hung on the church wall. You right now, if you're a believer, you're not here just for yourself. Christ hasn't saved you just for your own welfare. He saved you to spread his kingdom, to be molding influence for others. You're a cross-shaped mold that will produce cross-shaped people, if you will. The apostle did not need to witness in Macedonia and Achaia because the whole Thessalonian church had done such a good job of it. When we receive and trust God's word, despite whatever suffering comes, it makes an amazing impact on others for the gospel. This is the way it ought to be. The leaders of a church cannot be the only ones evangelizing to be effective, as effective as God has designed to really affect a lot of people in a wide area. More of us need to do this. This is why God can bring suffering on many in a church sometimes. And some people wonder, what is this? Peter says in 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised by this fiery ordeal. It means the Spirit is resting upon you and has purposes for you. When there's joyous faith and trial by an entire group of Christians, as there were for the Thessalonians, you see what happens. And what happens? They not only receive the word, they resound it. Look again at verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth, literally trumpeted forth in the Greek. Because it's an amazing thing. It shows God's supernatural power and they focus on God, not on you and me. What is the answer to our initial question about the purpose of suffering? Well, there's no doubt that God uses suffering to discipline us when we go awry and set us on the right track, just as suffering for a child, discipline imposed by a parent is intended to set the child on the right track. And we could look at Hebrews 12, 5 through 10 that that talks about that. That's not the point in this passage with regard to suffering, though. The point in our passage this morning is we become effective models of faith for others when we maintain joy and faith in God's word despite affliction. Let me repeat it. We become effective models of faith for others when we maintain joy and faith in God's word through affliction. Some might say it's a form of self-torture or masochism to be joyous in the midst of pain. Christians are weird masochists. There are a number of problems with that conclusion, however. And one of them, it expresses a wrong view of joy or pleasure for the Christian. One commentator said this, quote, If God told you that he was about to make you as happy as you could be in this world and then told you that the way he was going to do it was to begin by crippling you in an arm or leg and removing you from all your usual sources of enjoyment, you would likely think it's a very strange way of accomplishing his purpose to make you happy as you could be since it would appear that this would achieve only unhappiness. But God's wisdom is manifold. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. 
For example, if you knew, he he continues, if you knew of a recluse who had gotten used to staying in a closed room where the curtains were drawn, enjoying the lamps and the light they produced, and you wished to make this recluse truly happy, you might begin by turning out all his lamps. And that would cause some mild, irritating pain for him for a brief time. But then you would open the curtains to let the light of the sun in, which might hurt his eyes, but would finally give the recluse a more pure and bright light than any lamp so that his enjoyment would be even greater than he had ever experienced before. When God removes some of our apparent earthly comforts, which brings us small joys, those comforts, it's only to let in the light of his greater presence and greater joy now and even more when we see him face to face at the end. You see, even when we suffer now but keep trusting in God's word joyfully, it may, be, it may appear to be a defeat from the earthly perspective. But we can have joy in the midst of it because we know our suffering is being worked by God for our greater good and as a molding influence for others who are attracted to it under the influence of God's Spirit. And we're ultimately more than conquerors in that suffering and the greatest cause of all, the cause of God and his glory, which we take joy in now and later. Main point of the passage is we have nothing to say. Can your pastors and elders say, we have nothing to say? Because so many in our church are out there witnessing and molding others the gospel and the pattern of their lives, trusting in God's word through suffering and doing it joyfully. The point is we become models of faith and effective witnesses when we maintain faith in God's word joyously in affliction. We become models of faith and effective witnesses when we maintain faith in God's word joyfully through Affliction.